As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Itamar Surlovic. And I'm Sarit Packer. Welcome to Honey & Co. Welcome back, we should say. Welcome back, I suppose. Yeah, this is our revival after a year of what I can say <laughs> it wasn't has good. been a nightmare. <laughs> it wasn't a good year. Yeah, if I had to sum up, it would be like, why? Yeah, definitely why. Yeah. <laughs> It's been a difficult year for us, guys. You know, we own restaurants. We love to travel. It used to be like before 2020, if you'd say to someone, oh, yeah, I have a couple of restaurants, everyone would be like, oh, that's cool. And now when you say to someone, oh, yeah, we have some restaurant, people are like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Commiseration. Sorry to hear. But also for us, it's not just about the restaurants, is it? I mean, we love to entertain. We love to eat with people and we, you know, we love to travel. And all of that for this year has been not a part of our life. So looking back at our, each one of them is just so interesting and has such value to us. And it kind of feels like a different time. It was. It was so nice. Like we met people in our little deli. We sat really close and we sat with another 30 guests in like a tiny space, elbow <laughs> to elbow. We shared stories and we shared food and laughter and questions and really a simpler time. And, and we miss that time. If you're of a certain age, you would know the mixtape which was like currency in our youth. That If you love someone or if you like someone, you make them a mixtape. <laughs> We've compiled a little mixtape for you guys. This is a compilation of, of some of the talks we really enjoyed and things we wanted you to hear again, but the back catalogue is huge. We've brought together just a few of our favourite bits, the best, tastiest, crispiest, sweetest bits. I hope you feel inspired and energised and get some inspiration for where things are going from here because, you know, we all need to look to the future now. Guys, please help me welcome Claudia Roden here for us tonight. So to start with, we can revisit an amazing evening we had with a living legend, with Claudia Roden. And her own food story starts with a major upheaval. And we have all been through such an upheaval in our lives. So it's interesting to see where that can take you. 
It all begins with a young Claudia arriving in London from Egypt and a future ahead of her that is quite different than what she had planned. I was here as an art student. I was born in Egypt. I went to school in Paris and I came here. And in 1956, my parents had to leave Egypt all of a sudden. And all the Jews of Egypt left more or less at that time. It was a big traumatic event for a lot of people. And for several years in London, I was part of this community of refugees who were wondering where they would settle, what would happen, where to go. And one of the things that I realized was happening People were asking each other for recipes. Can you give me your recipe for this? For hummus, can you imagine? <laughs> can you give me the recipe for kibbe? It will be something to remember you by. But the thing was, there hadn't been a single cookbook in Egypt, neither Egyptian nor or Jewish nor anything else. And when, uh, for a time, we thought we'll write to anybody, everybody we know in Egypt to say, send us a cookbook. The only book that came back was macaroni cheese, <laughs> cauliflower cheese, roly-poly a la castada. And it was actually a translation of the Nafi cookbook. The Nafi was the catering department of the British Army. Oh. So, that, so that was the only cookbook in Arabic that came from Egypt. And I started collecting from everybody because it became something I thought that I must do. I must do for us, but also for my father, because my father was desperate to cook what his mother cooked in Cairo. And so I became like an obsessed collector. Every pocket I had in a coat, in a bag, <laughs> had a piece of paper where I had written a recipe. So it was so, for me, important. And at the same time, it gave me a way of being close to all these refugees because I felt I needed that. I needed that before they all go away, we'll have this contact. Before it's all lost. It was, it was that. And so a lot of people were saying, this recipe is from my grandmother in Fez. This recipe is from Izmir. This recipe is from Livorno. And I realized that... Egypt, in my time, was a cosmopolitan country with many minorities, and the Jewish minority was itself a mosaic of people who had come from all around the Mediterranean and all around the Middle East. But you were kind of obsessively collecting these recipes for, you know, for, for years. Yeah. And then at one point, this obsession turned into a book which is this one, Middle Eastern Food, First. which came out in 68 after yeah. really 10 years of work, actually. Yeah. And then this book became a career because it, it wasn't then a career becoming yeah. a food writer. It wasn't no. a, a path that someone would follow. But even so, my first cookbook that I bought was Elizabeth David's Mediterranean cookbook. Oh. And in it was a recipe for melocheia. Melocheia was uh, an Egyptian leaf that was a soup. 
in which you put uh, rice. Which is very Egyptian. It is the national dish. In fact, whenever they find a mummy, it's got melocheia in it. Really? (laughs) And broad beans and full. I so mean, that's the what they had. It tastes like a mummy. And it's still, so. it was. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like it? Uh, I adore it. Really? But nobody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And somewhere, Elizabeth David had written that this was the tip of the iceberg, that there is in the Middle East so much that somebody should do it. And I felt I should do it. Well, that was from Claudia Roden. What a legend. She's been such an inspiration to us over these years. Our next guest is Michael Rakovich. What a pleasure to talk to him. He's an Iraqi, Jewish, American artist. His maternal grandparents had to flee Iraq in the 1940s, and he creates art inspired by that. He was asked in 2011 to create this unusual dinner. The U.S. was still occupying Iraq at this time, and the prime minister of the time was Nouri al-Maliki. That's pretty much all you need to understand the gist of this crazy story ahead. I said, well, I want you to do something with Iraqi date syrup on this menu. And I said, the one last detail is that it's going to be served on plates that belong to Saddam Hussein and were looted from his palaces that I bought on eBay. And there was dead silence on the telephone. And then the PR person for the restaurant said, I think we're going to get a lot of attention for this project. <laughs> and, um, and so it ran for two months and just two days before it was supposed to conclude this project which I called Spoils ended up getting interrupted and we received a cease and desist letter from the American State Department Really. and the subject of the email was um, demanding the surrender of the Iraqi plates belonging to Saddam Hussein so it was crazy it was like the inanimate objects also had to like surrender and I was wondering where the State Department had gotten its request from, and uh, they wouldn't reveal it. And, and I said, well, this is the perfect end of the project. Because, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, because was I it think, you? Did you tip them off? No, I swear to God, I never have the guts. Um, but the, the, the way that, uh, that the artifacts, um, when they resurface in other countries there usually is like this kind of bureaucratic kind of, um, you know, not a subpoena, but like a, you know, a sort of summons, you know, for somebody to surrender something. And I wanted to, I said, all I want to do is be at the surrendering ceremony, you know? And they said, well, that's fine. We can arrange that. And that ended up happening a lot quicker than I thought. It was in, in December of 2011. And I just happened to be in New York where this was supposed to take place. And these two agents from the Forfeiture and Assets Division of the Department of the State were there and making sure that the plates were not fake. They arrived to make sure that they were actually, you know, legitimate and authentic. How do you verify that? They were tapping on the Wedgwood China because it's supposed to make like a certain kind of sound, you know, because some of the plates were gifts from the Queen of England. Uh, But to the King of Iraq, King Faisal II, Yeah. And Saddam was using the king's plates in his cupboards. So there's this weird thing where Saddam was looting also. Um, and, and so they determined it was all, you know, uh, authentic. And I said, well, where are you going now? And they said, we're actually going to the Iraq mission to the UN to turn these over. And whenever the artifacts... To return them. Exactly. So whenever the artifacts are returned to Iraq, 
it happens at those embassies on foreign soil. And I said, well, can I go? And they said, you can't ride with us. And so I followed the car in a cab. And we Follow ended, that car? Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. And, and the, the forfeiture and assets uh, agent said, you know, this, this, this order to collect the plates came directly from D.C. And they said that Nuri al-Maliki had been in, in, in Washington, D.C. that Monday. We, this was a Tuesday. And so he said that he was meeting with Obama. And Maliki apparently reads the New York Post. And the New York Post had actually published an article back in November with the title that said, Saddam does the, dish- the dishes. This is how my work gets reviewed now, you know? And, um, Could and, do a lot worse. Yeah, right. And Maliki said, I want these plates back. And Obama made the call to have the plates picked up. And uh, what we found out was that the plates were actually on Maliki's private plane back to Iraq that Wednesday. And on Thursday, they announced the end of the Iraq war. Um, and Mar- American forces pulled out. And so on the New York Times... That was the one condition. <clears throat> the plates... <laughs> that, that was the one thing that they needed. They say, I, look, we can put this all behind us. Give us those plates back. I like to think that I played a big role in, in all of this. We're hosting the special edition of the from the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, where there's an exhibition called Food, Bigger Than the Plate. It tells the story of our food from its origin in compost through to farming and trading, cooking and eating and everything that's on the table. Today we're joined by Fernando Lapos. Uh, help us in welcoming him, please. The traditional way of farming in Mexico, especially for corn, is the system called the milpa. And the milpa is combining three plants, corn, black beans, and pumpkins. They're called the, the Holy Sisters or the Mexican Holy Trinity because corn is sort of like a man-made plant. So it has an unusual intake of, of nitrogen from the soil. So if you only plant corn, you need to use fertilizers or something else to keep the soil going. But what the ancient Mexicans figured out was that if you planted with black beans... Beans have these little nodules in the, in the roots that fix nitrogen back into the soil, and that keeps the soil fertile. What happens is the black beans climb the, the, the corn plant, and then the pumpkin starts to spread on the, on the floor, and they carpet the whole floor. So the, the moisture and the humidity is retained there. So that's also how they manage to farm in these very dry conditions, because just a light rain is enough. So it's a system that doesn't need fertilizers, doesn't need pesticides, doesn't need herbicides, and kept them producing food all year long. They didn't need to do a, a rotation system. It's, it's really genius. In the 1990s, um, Mexico was with really big ambitions of becoming a, a, a power in Latin America. We signed a lot of treaties with uh, all sorts of countries, but mainly the United States and Canada, Uh, the now infamous NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And what we did was we opened a lot of the regulations to agriculture in the country. And that really opened the way for imports of GMO, herbicides, and pesticides, etc. Also imports from corn from the United States. That brought the price of corn down from one year to the next by two-thirds. The government knew that this was going to be a really big problem, especially for small rural areas. And so they rolled out these welfare programs where they said, well, 
here are tractors, you know, and the tractors would just roll down the hills because, you know, these are tractors that are made for the American Midwest, not the Sierra Mixteca, you know. So tractors didn't work. They introduced um, hybrids, herbicides. So it forced farmers to go from this really harmonious polyculture to a monoculture because these things that they were spraying would kill the beans and would kill the pumpkins and only hybrid industrial corn would grow. So that exhausted the soil within a few seasons and that started the process of erosion. And then after a few years, they couldn't grow anything. And that's why it started the, this really big migration. Most of them to the United States, ironically. So, <laughs> so when, when you wanted to find these original indigenous corn, did you have to ask them to grow them for you? So that was probably the most challenging part of the project. Because even though they were really eager to start this new ecological tactics, they knew how hard it is to reintroduce a seed that hasn't been weathered, as they call it. Yeah. And the thing is, in Mexico, and especially with indigenous communities, it's really unpolite to say no to things. And just things wouldn't happen. It just took me some years to understand why they yeah. were saying no. For me, everyone's laughing because it's very English, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was I started to publish some updates of the project and I entered a competition in Holland that was about food and food design and for that I needed to do a video and it became a little bit of a viral video in Mexico and that got me the attention of this place called the Simit which is the world's largest seed bank that specializes in corn. So they have thousands and thousands and thousands of sub-varieties and varieties of corn from all over the world, but especially from Mexico. And we started a process where, you know, I went to see Denise Kostich, who's the, the leader of, uh, of the seed bank, and she was like, okay, well, tell me what your problems are, you know, and I, and I, and I told her, and I was like, well, have you taken an altitude reading? And I was like, no. Have you taken so soil composition analysis? No, you know, so she's like, okay, go and stand exactly where you want to plant, and take a reading, and take a soil sample, and bring it back to us. But what Denise and the Seed Bank did was they created a selection for us. So they selected 16 varieties that would fit according to the weather, the soil composition, the altitude, etc. And we introduced them in 2016. And out of those 16, uh, not all of them did well, but uh, about eight of them re did really well. And then we've now narrowed it to six so we have six species that we've managed to reintroduce successfully. Have they gone back to any types of food that they used to make before because suddenly these corns are available again? Is it Definitely, because that's also part of the problem. There were recipes that they couldn't do anymore. So you could really do a comparison with Europe in the sense that imagine that from one day to the next, you would have one kind of wheat to make a pizza or to make a sourdough, to make a pasta or to make, you know... A cake. A, a cake. Uh, yeah. A cake. You, you need different kinds of flowers, so you need different kinds of wheat. If you only had one kind of wheat, your gastronomy would suffer a lot. And this is what we're experiencing in, in Latin America. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. We're going to go into our kitchen and honey and smoke and put some things on the grill before we meet our guests. The hum that you hear in the background, that's our extraction, that's... The motor for it, and this is the sound, the soundtrack to our lives. It is, yeah. Is we just hum. hear like. Vroom. Our guest this week is uh, Olia Hercules, a dear friend of ours, and a terrific cook. And she has an Eastern European background, so she has a 
Ukrainian, a little bit of Georgian mix in her, a little bit of Caucasian influences. And she cooks food from this part of the world and she cooks it amazingly well. Starting in the south of Ukraine uh, and then we went through Crimea and then we took a ferry to Sochi in Russia and then from Sochi we went to Abkhazia and from Abkhazia we went to Georgia and then we drove all the way to Azerbaijan. Amazing. So it was quite a trip. <laughs> One of the first kind of memories was actually to do with that trip. My, my family are like, are you sure you remember? You were very little. And they think I'm, it's a bit freaky, but I do actually remember myself from the age of two. I give them some details. They're like, this is really weird. <laughs> creepy <laughs> child. Yeah, <laughs> really creepy child. But I do remember um, uh, the big, uh, uh, tan, what we call tandir ovens, which are very close to tandoori ovens. I can't remember if it was Georgia or Azerbaijan. They both have them. Uh, kind of this glowing, kind of almost like a mouth and these breads just being slapped on on the side. And I was like, what is going on there? And just the memory of this massive bread coming, because they were kind of like roadside cafes, and we were hungry on the way. So then I remember seeing that. Then we got into the car, and then this huge bread, well, I was three, so it seemed like it was a, a massive, you know, like a table, being passed all around the car, and we all kind of had it, and it was gone in two seconds because it was just so delicious. And then, of course, in Ukraine, we uh, cooked over fire as well. Uh, so Ukrainian idea of a picnic or a kind of a, the way that we spent Sundays with my family would be in the summer would be to collect all our friends, you know, so a couple of families with kids, and we'd go to the river Dnieper. Uh, there were, like, some pine forests there. My dad, with his friends, would be fishing, and uh, we'd be cooking on fire afterwards. And actually, quite a lot of that cooking, it wasn't just making kind of shashliki or uh, whatever, like, meat on skewers. The fish that they would catch would have the small fish and would have a quite a big kind of cauldron-type situation and throw the fish in and make a make a fish uh, broth so so we did quite a lot of brothing (laughs) like smoky kind of flavor with loads of smoky flavor coming in yeah quite quite simple um and then you'd kind of just bash some garlic and dill uh, and salt together and temper it with a little bit of the hot broth uh and that would be kind of your condiment so you just put a little bit into each bowl and that would you know give everything a bit of a punch everyone join me in saying thanks so much to Olya for joining us today Olya Hercules she brought us the most incredible smoked dried pears from the Ukraine and uh, we're gonna cook our pear dish which is uh, pears on the grill that we marinate with some vinegar and honey and we serve with uh, almond tahini sauce coriander and smoked a little almonds, bit of smoked almonds. A bit of chili. Yeah, it's one of the dishes that we bring back every autumn to this uh, restaurant and everyone's always very happy to see it back. Should we go in? Yeah, let's yeah, go. Yeah, let's go. Should we push some chefs out of the way? Yeah, move chefs. Move chefs. <laughs> Should we try the pears? I want to make you the, the perfect bite. Make, make me the perfect bite. So you need a little bit of the smoky almonds, as much... Of the almond tahinis you can balance on top. And just one leaf of coriander. You want to get everything in that one bite. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, 
you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi everyone and welcome to Honey and Co. The F- I'm Sarit Packer. This series is called Who Run the World? And we're celebrating women in food. So this episode is going to be a bit different and we're going to be talking to our team of women that run Honey and Co. And it was never really our intention to house all our managing positions with women. It kind of happened naturally. So, of course, there's Itamar, and he is very much involved in everything. But other than him, we have a company that's run by a few lovely women. All right, so we're going to try and uh, find Bridget, who runs Honey and Spice. Let's see if she's here somewhere. Yeah. Hi. How you doing? Good. Who are you? I am Bridget Foje. <laughs> yeah. When did you join our company? So Lizzie is my youngest, and I gauge the age of Honey & Co. because Elizabeth was crawling around on the floor before it was open. Yeah, she was helping us clean it with her diapers. <laughs> <laughs> you joined us maybe five years ago? Yeah. And you're a chef. I'm a chef. But nowadays you run our deli. Yes. So we worked together at the Oxford Tower. And we had such fun. We did that for a couple of years. Yeah, we were there for a few years. Yeah. And then you got married. I got married. And you had a baby. How do you think that changed things? It's hard. It's hard as a woman and kids and this industry. It's that whole kind of uh, glass ceiling thing. You either choose to have a family and then step back and you can't proceed further with your career. Or you push forward and have the career. Such a hard choice. It's also a hard financial choice. Most chefs' salaries do not pay for childcare. No. So you're either working for nothing or you're staying home. 
But then when I got pregnant with my second daughter, it's too much. Yeah. You know, pregnant, running to daycare. Like my husband would take my first daughter. Freya, and your husband is a chef as well. And my so husband's can, a chef, yeah. so definitely not the, the most family-friendly industry. Yeah. Then I would run to pick up Freya, run home. So this was part of the decision or part of the idea when we said you should join us was yeah. because we kind of, in a way, created a job that didn't exist so that it would work around your girls. Yeah. It, it didn't mean Bridget didn't sleep for pretty much good on two years because, <laughs> I mean, you can say I would that. I would work nights and yeah. then I would have the days with my daughters. So I would do about three nights a week. Start at about 10 p.m., finish about 7 a.m. So the kitchen was just closing. Everyone was winding down. I would come in. I would do all the doughs. Like, the doughs would be made for me ahead of time. And then I would shape everything, the boicos, all the... The babkas, the, the milk babkas, buns. The milk buns, the Fitzrovias. So I have a question. Yeah. When were you sleeping when you were working nights and with the girls? And I'm telling you, she didn't sleep for two years. I'm honest. I I slept uh, odd hours. I would make it up a couple nights a week and then I would sleep like really like the power napping that everyone tells you about. I would do this. But then I would wake up and say some really bizarre things to the kids. I'd be like, why is there apricots on the door? And they'd just look at me and be like, what? She was honestly, she was sleepwalking for a little bit for, yeah, yeah. for a while there. But it is also the biggest adrenaline rush ever. <laughs> a service on a busy night and like knocking that out and having everything be beautiful. That is like the best feeling. It is amazing. Thank you, Bridget. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> welcome, everyone. Today we have a huge pleasure in talking to Sami Nasrat. A big hand of applause. I went to university in Northern California in Berkeley to write because I wanted to be a poet. And I was an English major studying literature. I did a year abroad here in London studying Shakespeare. And then um, I had a boyfriend who wanted, who was from the Bay Area, from San Francisco. And he, we really bonded over eating over, and he showed me all of his favorite, like his favorite burrito, his favorite pizza, all the things. And he really wanted to eat at this restaurant called Chez Panisse in Berkeley which was a really famous restaurant. But I grew up eating Persian food and tacos. So like I didn't have a relationship to fine dining or famous restaurants. I didn't even, it didn't even, the idea of paying $100 for dinner, I was like, why would you do that? (laughs) And so, and so, um, but we saved our money for seven months. We saved $220 and we went there and it really blew my mind. It was such an extraordinary, exquisite experience to eat at this restaurant and feel so cared for and every detail had been thought about and the flower arrangement was so beautiful and the lights were like copper and warm and the butter came in this little ramekin and I had never seen butter in a ramekin like that before and I was like, I think they churned it in the back. You know, later I became a busser and I found out they did not churn it in the back. A busser has to painstakingly put it in there in the perfect way. But um, it was just just really amazing and the dessert was chocolate souffle and the server brought it and she said have you ever had souffle before and I said no show me what to do and she said you have to poke a hole in it and pour the sauce in so every bite has sauce so I said okay so I did it and she said how is it and I said oh it's good I was like it's really good but it would be better 
if you had a glass of cold milk because it was like a warm chocolate thing and cold milk. And so, and so I had no idea how incredibly rude that was. <laughs> and also like really betrayed my unsophistication because like to have milk, you know, like in fine dining and in Europe, like to drink milk after 10 a.m. is like totally uncouth. And so like, I was just like, here I am, 19 year old person who knows nothing. So she was kind of charmed and she brought me milk and she also brought us dessert wine to show us the refined accompaniment. Well, you should and be. So, <laughs> and so then um, I had we had it and it was just a really, like I felt so cared for and, and it really, it was just charming. And so I immediately wrote a letter and made my resume and I always had jobs while I was in school. And so I brought the letter there a little while later and they said, oh, you have to bring it to the floor manager. So they sent me around the corner to her office and she opened the door and it was the souffle lady. And so she, we recognized each other. And I also think she was probably like pretty desperate. So she was like, do you want to start tomorrow? And I was like, okay. Oh, sorry. So I started the next day bussing tables. And, you know, in the meantime, I had figured out that this place was this American institution by then. I, the my first day was the 28th birthday of the restaurant. It had already been there for so long. Which is amazing. Yeah, which too. is an incredible lifespan for a restaurant. Yeah. And that was almost 20 years ago. I mean, it's almost been there 50 years now. And so it's um, it was a machine by then. And it was everything was so smooth. And everyone was so professional and knew exactly like what they were supposed to be doing. And there was a way to tie the trash bag. And there was a way to pour the water. And, and so... My first task was to come. They walked me through the kitchen, which is so beautiful and pristine, and the cooks, like, all wearing their gleaming white coats. And they look at you, and, like, it's like when they smile. It was, like, almost like a cartoon where they go, ding, like, the teeth are just, like, gleaming. It was just over-the-top <laughs> perfection, you know? And they are like, okay, here, now your first job is to vacuum the floor. And they pull out this vacuum that's, like, this 50-foot cord that plugs into the central like vacuuming thing and I was like even the vacuum here is amazing like I never like <laughs> and then I was like I just can't believe they're letting me vacuum the floor of Japanese <laughs> so I like from the first day it was I was like you know I just wanted to do my, and I'm an immigrant kid so like I just want to do my best, you know, and overachieve. And so I just wanted to show them everything I could do, but I didn't actually know how to do anything. And um, I immediately became, fell in love with food and cooking there. And so I wanted, I saw how the cooks were treated. They were the rock stars of the place. And I was like, maybe when I graduate college, I can't just be a poet and make a living doing that. So maybe I need a skill. And it sort of was just the timing and the play, everything just sort of came together. So I begged them to teach me how to cook and you know, reluctantly, they eventually let me yeah, in the kitchen, yeah. <laughs> and I have a friend who always sends me funny ideas for what she thinks my next book should be. And today she sent, I think it should be um, taking, like when you buy food from a, you know, prepared food from a shop and you bring it home and you need to eat it for dinner, but it's not just right, so you need to tinker with it to make it right. She was like, I think you should write a book about that. <laughs> you would be so ill if you buy food from, that's ready from a shop, you're gonna, yeah. And so, but I, I do think there's a thing where like, I'm obsessed with that tinkering. Like I do it on the airplane with the whatever they give me, you know, I do it at the like, I've been traveling a lot. So I do it at the, you know, just the crappy Mexican food place where I like combine the different salsas and put the extra lime juice. Like to me, I, I, I think I'm because I know how good things can taste. Also, when I first started cooking, they told me, they said, you won't know anything until you've been doing this for 10 years. And that was before, like, Malcolm Gladwell had written the 10,000 hour thing. But they're just like, it doesn't become part of your body till you've been doing it for 10 years. And it was true. It was like something clicked at 10 years. And 
which is a hard thing to tell people who are home cooks. I don't want to tell you that you won't know anything for 10 years of doing it eight hours a day or 12 or 15 as it may be. But I think the message in there is practice. And I think people expect, oh, it's if I make this recipe and it's bad the first time, something's wrong with me or something's wrong with the recipe. No, you just got to do it again. Like, keep going, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tonight we're joined by one of the craziest, funniest, most fun guests we've ever had. This is Max from Max's Sandwich Shop. It's someone that I have quite a man crush on. Would love to be his friend even though I know it will ruin my liver. We had a crazy night talking about the six rules of sandwiches. I don't have a car anymore, but I used to have a car. I always had this massive bottle of Tabasco in my car. So that if I had have ever had to stop at like the petrol station for a sandwich or something... I could buy a sandwich can, and some crisps, chuck the crisps in and cover it all in Tabasco. And yeah, well, that's the other, the other you've thing. You've got a Michelin star. Everything <laughs> is, is much nicer with Tabasco as well. Yeah, nearly everything. I figured out that last year, bear in mind it's only one sandwich shop, that we'd used 1.8 tonnes of mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of mayonnaise. That's a lot of mayonnaise. <laughs> there is something very, very special about the combination of very accomplished bright food in a very, can I say, silly shop? Yeah. There's a suggestion box, which is a shredder. <laughs> I just, which, if one more bloody person says, have you ever thought of a fish oh, finger yeah, sandwich? I'm yeah. going to have to kill someone. There's, there's, <laughs> there's silly ducks everywhere. This guy is there. What you're saying about this whole the silly thing. The silly thing's important for me because I think that a lot of food culture in Britain has become about making... So provenance and stuff like that and seasonality, of course, are very important fundamentals and those are all things that we should be thinking about when we eat. But it's also just lunch. And I wanted the sandwich shop to treat food in this manner where it was... It's just dinner. And that you can come into this lovely place where everything's really fun. But that, yeah, you could get something really genuinely delicious in a completely unprosaic manner. And I th that's, like, really important to me. Because of my background and how I've been taught to cook, I found that when I started looking at how could I open a restaurant selling sandwiches, that I just naturally thought about the fillings of a sandwich in the same way I would have if I'd been putting a dish on a menu in a Michelin star restaurant, you know? And it's hot, cold, sweet, sour, crunchy, soft. And I, for me, that is the secret of delicious. That if you eat something that has all six of those elements that you kind of, you almost can't cock it up, you're going to get something delicious. And where I found I've become so lucky having sandwiches is that when you're, if you're a chef and you're making a plate of food and people are eating it with cutlery, you, of course, you're thinking about texture and hot, you know, hotness and coldness and sweetness and sourness and crunchiness and softness. But through the nature of someone eating a plate of food with a knife and fork, you, the chef, have no control over how they consume that plate of food you've presented them with. So even if you've got all six of my elements on your plate, the mouthfuls of food are not going to be like that. And what a sandwich does is it allows you 
to put every single one of those six things, hot, cold, sweet, sour, crunchy, and soft, into every bite that someone has. And I think that is why they're so satisfying. <laughs> because you've got all of what your kind of brain is looking for in deliciousness in every bite of the sandwich. And quite frankly, I think that's better than a plate of food. So I, I'd, ra- I'd, I'd rather eat that. <laughs> so much better. Yeah, like, so everything in one go. Big hand to this guy while he's tapping the sandwiches. All right, that's almost all we have time for in this mixtape, but I urge you guys to go back to our back catalogue, listen to some of our amazing conversations with people in our industry, all aspects of it. And it's been so inspiring to talk to, to journalists and to critics and to restaurant owners and makers and cooks and producers. I think in any conversation you will find something that catches you and that's interesting. We definitely did. Now we have time for just another wafer-thin morsel from one of our personal favorites. But before, we'd like to thank everyone, our producer, Miranda Hinckley, Richard Ward for additional production, our audio engineer, John Scott, Hester Kant, who produced some of these talks that you're listening to, and to Louisa Cornford, our head of communications and our superstar. Thanks to Daniel Winchell for our amazing new theme music. And thanks to all our favorite guests in the Food Talks over the years, including the utterly charming Andy Oliver. Welcome, guys. Thank you very much. So tonight, guys, we are joined by the wonderful you that came to hear the wonderful Andy Oliver, who is a musician, a chef, a broadcaster, a trailblazer, and now a documenter of uh, recipes as well. Um, that's what, that's kind of historian newest, for the future. It's my newest obsession. When I came to London and I met Nana Cherry, who's, you know, my sister friend, she absolutely introduced me to real liberation, actually, as a young woman, because she came from this real hippie jazz, jazz, like proper jazz kind of life background. And and then we met each other and sort of fell in love and kind of it was like we found a reflection of ourselves in each other in some kind of way. And that friendship really gave us the strength to be whoever we needed to be. You know, we would take our shoes off and tuck our dress into our knickers and dance and just go nuts, basically. <laughs> But it was it was like medicine. Yeah. It wasn't like for the, oh, we're so crazy. It wasn't really like that. It was more just like a desire to run that fire out and to really try to put a name on it and try to really find our own language and our own way through, basically. I love so, that line, run our fire out. <laughs> it was a bit like that, though, and I think we were like that for a long time. So you were doing music, you got somehow into music TV presenting. You got into that yes, kind of Yes, I did of a world. I did a show called Badass TV with Ice-T, <laughs> which was on Channel 4. Do you remember, what was it called? Euro something. There was a, there was a weird show... Euro trash. That's the one. Thank you. Good job you're here. And uh, it was like a kind of black version of Euro trash. People got very upset about it because there was it was really inappropriate, <laughs> but in the best possible way. I think you know what I mean. I like things to be a bit inappropriate. You, you, um, you need if you're not inappropriate. Oh God, if you're, you're not inappropriate, what are we doing exactly? Yeah. Uh, so people got a bit upset about, it, but it was the best fun. I had the most hilarious time with Ice T, who spent most of the time having his ponytail tongued. Let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> 
really that gangster. But anyway, he was a really funny guy. I mean, that is gangster. It's, it's that pretty is gangster. It's gangster. pretty deep gangster. You know, those yeah. guys with the rollers in there yeah. and stuff. And he was, he was really funny. We just had a really hilarious time doing it. And I think from then, I kind of moved between doing that and a bit of radio and a bit more TV here and a bit more radio there. And I realised that for me... It all comes from the same place, making music, broadcasting, making food, whatever it is. It's about your own truth and finding your own voice and finding a way to express yourself in the most effective way possible. And that can be through a plate of food. It can be through a song. It can be through a dance. It can be through a really little lunch with your family or, you know, wherever, as long as there's breath and truth in it then then you'll feel good and I mean, that's kind of what i worked out let's talk about the food because now you're kind of most recognized for, for your work in the field of yep. food was this always there or food's always been always, there it's, it's always always, been. always always been there we were talking downstairs and I yeah. said that nana and i were very weird i mean we were teenagers really and you know we'd be having gonna have a party and then the guys came in and they'd be like, what is that in the bath? You're like, it's mackerel. <laughs> Why are there 60 mackerel in the bath? Like, oh, we're making this great dish we saw. <laughs> you know, and that's not normal for 18-year-olds. Yeah. I don't Everyone's think. like, have you, heard, have you heard of salted peanuts? Do you know what I mean? What we have dinner, we're like, we're making coconut rice and a really great Thai mackerel thing. And we're making, you know, we would lie around reading cookbooks to each other down the phone or like, on, you know, wherever. It was just like our... Another escape route and another way of finding beauty, I think, and simple beauty, because that's the great thing about cooking, isn't it? It's the alchemical nature of cooking that I love, that you can take two things or three things that don't sound like they should be together and create some new explosion that is just a sort of moment of wonder on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. And we all need a moment of wonder on a Tuesday, well, Tuesday afternoon. afternoon more than any other moment. More yeah. than any other moment. Well, it's aside, the from, aside from Wednesday morning. Oh, that's, that's a, a whole other story. <laughs> Everyone, thank you so much for listening to our favorite bits of Honey and Coat in the past. And now we're looking towards the future and what this means for us. So our next season will be all about Chasing Smoke, our upcoming book that we were lucky enough in 2019, before the world shut down, to travel all over the Levant. To Egypt and Greece and Jordan and Israel and Turkey. Meet some amazing people, cook some amazing recipes. And in each episode, we're going to be talking you through cooking one of the recipes, but also chatting to Patricia, our photographer that went with us on the trips, and also chatting to one of the people we met there. Just catching up and seeing how their year has been. Spoiler alert, not great. Yeah, not great for everyone. <laughs> After that, we're hoping to, to revive our actual Honey and Cook. Closer to its old format, we're going to be talking to some really exciting people. There will be some amazing guests, so keep your ear to the ground for more details. It's all coming to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ita Masrulovic. And I'm Sarit Thakar. Catch you next time. <laughs>